Good morning. It's a real pleasure and privilege to be here this morning. Uh, I was honored that Tim, Pastor Tim Rogers asked me uh, to present the word today, and I consider it a great uh, honor and humbly come before you uh, to preach the blessed word of God that transforms our lives. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, Father of all lights, Father of mercy, in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning, we thank you that we can approach your throne through the merits, the worth of your beloved Son, Jesus. And so we approach your throne of grace as needy children, as saints who are caught up in gratitude for the work of redemption that you've wrought in our lives because of the work of your Son and because of the power of your Spirit which turned hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And we are so grateful for this, Father. Our desire today and our request is that you would work through your Spirit as the Word is preached. Open our hearts. May we be good soil, uh, producing a harvest for your glory that people can see you and the glory of your name. So we thank you for this because we know you, your Spirit works in concert with the Word and our desire is that you would be glorified. And we ask that not only for this church, Grace Point, but also for all the churches in Lancaster County that proclaim you as King Jesus. We ask this for those around the globe, whether it's in Costa Rica or in other nations who proclaim you as Christ, that you would be seen as the King Jesus to the praise of the Father. Thank you for hearing us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen. I'd like to start this morning with an illustration, and uh, many of you who are parents will reverberate with this illustration. So, um, as was mentioned, I have a son, Caleb, who's seven years old, and those of you who have parents know that children have wonderful imaginations. Yes, <laughs> it is true. So uh, my son has a wonderful imagination as well, and he was, uh, lately he's been into uh, knights and castles. So his daddy and him in the summer have been going to the library and doing some research on castles. We've been watching videos on castles. Uh, He's asked me to make castles, which is not always the easiest, so I've been trying to do that. Yesterday we finished a clay castle, and uh, for the most part I enjoy... uh, playing knights in castles with my son, except when he asked me to joust, which isn't the best experience. <laughs> so that's been a new, new thing for us. Uh, and it's fine and it's cute to watch my son put on the knight outfit, so he's got the helmet, he's got the breastplate, he's got the cape, he's got the sword, and to see him even walk into grocery stores, and people are amused by this, they find it very cute, and I follow behind him, he goes and asks for cheese at the deli, and people just love this. It's very amusing for me, it's very amusing for my wife and my son. Uh, So in one sense, he's living in the world of knights and enjoying that. And it is very amusing for us. But it would not be amusing if my son was 30 years old, still pretending he was a knight. It would be rather tragic. I would not be amused. I would be embarrassed. Uh, He would experience very shortly living in the knight world and also in the 21st century world what sociologists call cognitive dissonance which is an unnerving experience where you realize that the world that you perceive it to be is not really the way the world truly is. And um, unfortunately, uh, as Christians, 
we also do sometimes experience this cognitive dissonance. We live in this world, uh, but it is truly not the world that we were designed to live in. And those of you who are familiar with the New Testament know that with the giving of the Spirit, the new age has dawned. The new realm has come. The new world of being in Christ has been ushered in through the Pentecost event. And so as you read through the literature of the New Testament, the glory of it is when Paul or the other apostles enjoin fellow believers to live in the light of this new world, not in light of the old world. It won't work. And it's, if you live in the light of the old world, there's tragic results that follow. And you can see this in many of Paul's letters where he enjoins, let's say, the Corinthians to not live in light of the world of the Mediterranean value system of honor and shame, but to live in the light of the cross instead, which reorients our affections. Uh, this morning I'd like to talk about a, an area where those two worlds often do collide, our 21st century world and our world of being in Christ. One place I think this is extremely evident, where there's this cognitive dissonance and a discrepancy and a contradiction, is in the way we treat uh, fellow believers. So my sermon today is uh, addressing how we treat those who are in Christ. And I should present this proviso that when I talk about believers in Christ, I'm not simply talking about people here at this church. <laughs> that would be rather easy for most of us to love them deeply and to extend forgiveness and radical grace. I'm talking about people in this community of paradise with other churches, perhaps Presbyterian, Charismatic, Baptist, what have you, and in this county and then around the world. And I'm asking you to even consider your relationship with other believers who may have wronged you at a certain point in your life or were perhaps still wronging you. So today's sermon is addressing relationships with saints, but it's a relationship not just in this, not just in this church. And to drive this point home to see if we do have some cognitive dissonance, I have a few questions for you. I'm a professor at Lancaster Bible College, and I haven't had a chance to give out many quizzes this summer. So here's a series of four questions that I have for you, and I'd like you to consider how you would answer these and see how the sermon addresses this as well. Uh, question one, what effect does the gospel have on our relationship with other believers, if at all? Number two, in our relationship with other believers, how can you and I break the influence of society, our society which is marked by manipulation, coercion, vengeance, and one-upmanship? Number three, what empowers or motivates you to love other believers deeply? What is that driving force? And last four, where in the New Testament can one find Jesus' teachings on relationships among believers? And then where is that teaching fleshed out in real-life practical detail? So that's what I hope to address today, and we'll start with number four. Uh, where is Jesus' teaching very specific on dealing with the saints? And I'd like you to uh, open your Bibles with me. I grabbed a Bible from your, the church here. Uh, to help you with, to find the text. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 18 um, as the one place that is perhaps the, perhaps the most specific and direct regarding Jesus' teachings on how believers relate to one another. Matthew chapter 18 is found in your pew Bible on page 799. 799. We'll, we'll look at this very briefly. 
uh, because this isn't our primary text for consideration. And it comes as no surprise to you or perhaps to me that uh, Jesus is very clear and very stark when it comes to talking about relationships among believers. And Matthew 18 is uh, particularly direct. Now, if you're working through Matthew's gospel, which we certainly are not here today, you would know that Matthew has five blocks of teaching where Jesus has extended teaching, and they call them books, scholars do. So here we are on one of the books, which is an extended discourse of Jesus, but this section of Matthew's gospel is related to Jesus teaching about how fellow believers relate to one another. And as you're looking through Matthew chapter 18 in your pew Bible, there are certain headings that they give to different paragraphs. So Matthew chapter 18 starts with the disciples coming to Jesus and asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now that's a a value system in their day in the first century Palestine of honor. They want to be the greatest. Now Jesus does as Jesus does best, which is to upset the cart, overturn their cultural assumptions, and fuse into them a new world system, a new value system that is going to cause a collapse in their old value system. And so he rewrites the issue of honor and shame. And he says in verse 3, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You go into heaven needy, without merit, without a lengthy honorable uh, resume list. And then he talks about those little ones who we all should be welcoming the little ones in verses 6 through verse 9. Do whatever it takes to not offend one of these little ones, one of those believers that we might look down upon. Uh, Go to great lengths not to cause them to be offended. A very serious warning there in that section. And then Jesus extends that teaching to a parable, the parable of the wandering sheep. Do, do whatever it takes to bring a lost one, an erring one, back into the fold. And then in verse 15 through 19, the title there is Dealing with Sin in the Church, How We Relate to One Another in the Life of Purity in the Body. And, Matt, and Peter, of course, has been hearing all of this. And he comes in in verse 21, and Peter comes to Jesus and asks, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And then Jesus, we know his answer to this, which is astonishing. I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. That's a radical forgiveness in the first century that was unheard of. But to reinforce this point, he's going to give them a parable, which Jesus does well. So the rest of Matthew chapter 18 talks about this radical forgiveness extended to another that is only able to be extended because of the radical grace one has seen in one's own life, and then the ability to extend that to others. In this short block of teaching in Matthew chapter 18, in black and white, stark contrast, Jesus says believers of Christ are marked by a deep love for one another, where they esteem and value and cherish the little ones, where they go to great lengths to uphold the little ones, and where they extend radical forgiveness. Now, as with many of Jesus' teachings, we hear this and say, wonderful, (laughs) too tough, too challenging, (laughs) I'm not even sure what this would look like. Well, the beauty of it is that at the end of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, for our redemption, dies on the cross and rises again to the satisfaction of the Father. He's raised to heaven, and he releases the Spirit, which now is transforming hearts through the gospel. So the gospel is the orbit of, that is turning the New Testament. After this event in Matthew chapter 18, then we have a letter that I think most closely approximates to the teaching of Matthew chapter 18. So Jesus says to esteem the little ones. Jesus says to extend radical forgiveness. 
Show me what it looks like. And that then leads us into a small text near the end of the New Testament, the text of Philemon. So I'd like you to turn there with me to a small text called Philemon. Uh, The page is 967. 967 in your pew Bible. Philemon is uh, toward the end. It's after Timothy and Titus. The reason they put it toward the end of Paul's letters is because it's the shortest. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews, so they put it right before Hebrews. But Philemon is a very small text, very powerful, very potent text that speaks directly to how we relate to one another as saints, but in a very practical and powerful, surprisingly powerful way. Now, before we jump in, and we're going to do a very brief walkthrough, this is mission impossible to walk you through the entire text in the New Testament uh, in our short time together. I want to give you a few things you need to know about the historical background uh, of this letter. Two things in particular we need to know about before we jump into Philemon that are both very relevant to our reading and understanding of Philemon. One is a concept in the first century world known in Latin as the pater familius. Uh, Pater, father, and familius, of course, sounds like family. The Roman citizens lived and modeled themselves after this concept of the pater familius, which is the oldest head of the household, the father, exercises and wielded absolute control over his family. He did it through coercion, through manipulation, through mere might. He was actually, in essence, the Roman emperor in microcosm in his family. And so he exercised vast jurisdiction over his family and complete jurisdiction and complete control over his whole family. That was an honor that the Roman society maintained. In fact, um, a Roman jurist named Gaius looked around other civilizations and said, we alone possess this distinctive feature of paterfamilias, the father of the household, wielding absolute jurisdiction and complete control over his family members. One area where that was most emphatically understood and seen was in the area of slavery, where the paterfamilias exercises his absolute control over the slaves in his household, if he had slaves. Now, uh, slavery is not a concept that we are entirely familiar, except in our own uh, cultural context here, but slavery in the first century was rather different in certain ways. It didn't extend to particular genders or races or nationalities or ethnic uh, lines. Instead, a slave was often taken from uh, warfare, prisoners of war. They were often taken from piracy, from infant exposure, or simply from the offspring of slaves reproducing. Um, A slave lived in a household and had absolutely no rights, Uh, no rights whatsoever. They actually termed slavery as a a form of social death, and you were denied the most elementary of bonds in that society, which is kinship. You had none. You had no rights. The master could control you at his whims, and Seneca tells us, actually, that slaves were considered living tools. And you know if you have a tool that you use a tool at your discretion, at your will, according to your own pleasure. Even Cicero, who many consider uh, one of the nicest, kindest Roman citizens, who was also a rhetorician, uh, who spoke about the utter persuasion, expected in his letter of the Republic expected that a master was going to manipulate and to break the will and the bond of a slave. And in the first century, uh, it well documented is the assumption that if a slave does wrong to their master, to the paterfamilias, the master would normally respond in a fitting way, which was to flog the slave or to break their legs. 
And this was clearly a common assumption in the first century. So two things we have to keep in mind. The paterfamilias was Roman honor value system of complete jurisdiction over a household. And that extending in stark lines to a slave who had absolutely no rights in the first century. Now, the reason I bring those two issues up is because we have here in this short text an issue between a master and a slave. The master being a man named Philemon and a slave who's known as Onesimus. Now, the interesting thing is, from what I've just told you about the paterfamilias and slavery, the interesting thing is this letter should not exist because we have a slave who has wronged his master. And for what we know in the first century, that means that Paul, who's writing the letter, has absolutely no jurisdiction over this matter. It's a personal affair involving a master's relationship with his slave. Paul has no right, no jurisdiction. This is not Paul's slave. But the letter does exist. And if you know about the letter of Philemon, it's a very powerful letter where Paul calls Philemon to transformation. And a Roman citizen would read this and say, you have no right, Paul. The question, therefore, is what right does Paul have and what allows Paul to work with the assumption that the gospel has somehow changed things that he can call Philemon to enact the gospel in his own life and his relationship to Onesimus. Very powerful letter. What I'm going to do now then is work through the main contours of Philemon. Very briefly, we'll step back and get a snapshot of where Paul is going, and then I want to dive back again into the paragraphs and then finally look at the relevance of this for our own, our own life. As you're looking there in the Pew Bible at 977, Paul starts with a typical greeting. In the first century, they would often just say greeting, Corinne, but Paul uses the word charis, which is the word for grace. So he's already radically rewriting the values of the first century for Philemon. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. This is the uh, the owner of the slave, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that meets in your home. Interesting. <laughs> the jurisdiction between a master and slave has been completely broken in this case because Paul is writing to a number of individuals. And then he has the keynote that Paul loves. He begins and ends many of his letters with this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now just think about this. How is Paul addressing the value system of first century Rome. The paterfamilias in this relationship is not Philemon. It is who? Whose father? It's God. So you see Paul is already rewriting the value system under the rubrics of the gospel. So we have a very gracious uh, opening of Paul addressed primarily to Philemon. Then, after the greeting section in verse 1 through 3, we have what is typical for Paul, which is a prayer and praise. It's our snapshot into what Paul thinks of the recipient, and it's a snapshot into what Paul does or what he, Paul says when he's praying to God on behalf of this recipient here, Philemon. So he says in verse 4, I thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people, for all the saints, and your faith in Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. So if we 
look at this short section, we sense very quickly that Paul has a very tender relationship with Philemon. Philemon is a saint who has extended a great amount of love to other saints. And Paul has much to praise God uh, for this. Next section, verses 8 through 16, Paul begins to mention the slave, Onesimus. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who's my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have kept him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not be seen as forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me and even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So here now Paul turns from the greeting to the prayer and praise to a narrative about an individual named Onesimus that God has, by his grace, transform the heart of Onesimus, that he is now a saint. With that information, then, he goes into what they would call a probation or his appeal section, which is verse 17 through 22, where Paul becomes very specific. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I might have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest home for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Very specific request found in verse 17. Receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul. And then Paul finalizes with a closing. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And with this, Paul closes. Now, if we look very quickly at what Paul is doing, it's rather interesting how he develops what is seen as his logic of the letter. He addresses saints, one through three. Four through seven, he praises Philemon for his love for the saints. 8 through 16, guess who just became a saint? Onesimus. Therefore, what is Philemon going to do in verse 17 through 22? Receive him as he would receive a saint. Um, Now, prior to Paul's time, there was a philosopher named Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle codified what we know as normally the laws of logic. He didn't invent them. He just put them into logical forms and people substantiated them. And one of those forms that Aristotle came uh, termed was the categorical syllogism. And I just want to walk this through briefly with you so you can see the force of what Paul is doing in this letter. So stay with me if you like logic and philosophy. You'll enjoy this moment. Categorical syllogism works this way. All A, and you can put in the concept of A whatever you would like. This is the fun part of philosophy. All A is B. Then you introduce a new concept named C. C is A. And what does that mean, therefore? Therefore, C is 
C is B. If you're awake with me this morning and tracking that, that's the way the logic works. So all A is B, C is A, therefore C is B. I'll give you a fun illustration to show you how this works, and then we're going to consider how Paul does this in the letter to Philemon. I hope this doesn't offend anybody. And since Pastor Rogers is not here, is he here? I don't see him here. We can put him on the spot. <clears throat> so here it is. We'll put in the slots of the A's and B's something. All Cowboy fans, sorry, all Cowboy fans is A. All Cowboy fans, A, are real sports fans. <laughs> B. Tim Rogers, C, is a Cowboys fan. <laughs> for the sake of argument. Therefore, Tim Rogers is what? He's a real sports fan. Everybody see how that works, right? The categorical syllogism. Uh, it's locked tight as long as you accept the premises. Uh, now, what do you think would be the logical premises for the letter to Philemon? What would be the A, what would be the B, and what would be the C? So let's look at this the way Paul develops his argument. Uh, all the saints is A. All the saints, A, and then B is, are shown love by Philemon. Right? All saints are shown love by Philemon. C is Onesimus. Onesimus is now a saint. Therefore, Onesimus will be shown love by Philemon. So when people read this, sometimes they think Paul is manipulating them, but he's actually asking Philemon to act consistently with what God has done in his life by grace. He's treated the saints well through God's grace in his life, and now he expects the same for Onesimus. Very interesting way to manage this paterfamilias and the issue of slavery. So that's the general pattern of where Paul is going, but I want to take a quick look back at paragraph analysis and just point out a few things with how Paul actually expresses the beauty of the gospel here in fine-tuned ways in the paragraphs. So look with me again in verses 1 through 3. How does the power of the gospel transform? I've mentioned this briefly in passing, but the first thing we see is the pater familius is not the Roman emperor, nor is it Philemon. The God and Father is the pater familius. And if he is, then all of those who belong to him are equal sons and daughters. So Paul is very quickly rewriting the value system of Roman society. He also interestingly mentions in verse 1 that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, as we know the context here, he actually is a, he's actually a prisoner of Rome. So likely, he, this is 60 to 62 AD, he's writing uh, under house arrest. He's a prisoner of Rome. But Paul doesn't see it that way. He's actually a prisoner of another value system, another entity. He is infusing the gospel world into the society in which Philemon lives and radically rewriting it at every turn. But another interesting thing occurs here in 1 through 3. Uh, Greek grammarians call this appositional phrases, and we don't need to know that except to know that we often attach to people's names adjectives or things that describe them that give you a mental framework for understanding what's coming next. Right? So we do this. Uh, here's one. Henry, the ever-forgetful one. That's a title you give to Henry. And then after I say he's the ever-forgetful one, my next sentence is probably going to be something about his forgetfulness. And yes, lo, it is. Henry, the ever-forgetful one, lost his library book. Or if I say Henry, here it is, the oppositional phrase, the, the adjective, the brave, Henry the brave, 
ventured out to Park City on Christmas Eve. Or, now to counteract the Cowboys illustration, we'll put in another one. Uh, The ever-loyal Philadelphia Eagles fans have just purchased another round of season tickets. The ever-loyal Eagles fans are now purchasing another round of season tickets. So those adjectives, those phrases help us frame who the characters are. And Paul is doing something rather intriguing. And as you're looking at the text, look at how he describes the characters, the recipients of his letter. Verse 1, Timothy, how does he describe Timothy as? A brother, kinship, rewriting family values. Philemon, a dear friend and fellow worker. Aphia, a sister. Archippus, a fellow soldier and the church that meets in your home. We have intimate, tender, kinship, communal language that Paul is already setting the stage for saying, I'm upsetting world A, gospel world B, which is all are one in Christ. Brothers and sisters is how we should respond to one another. Very interesting how Paul phrases this. Now, one of the things to note is that Paul truly believes in the power of the gospel from start to finish, and this is how he begins his letter Gospel, the gospel is about grace, even as we sang about this morning. And the only thing that's going to enable Philemon to love and to receive Onesimus is by the operation, the deeply transforming power of God's grace. And that's how he begins this letter. So this isn't moralism. This isn't Philemon, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is the God of all grace enables us. Or as was said this morning, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Next thing to note is in verse 4, Paul is very thankful. And as I just mentioned about God's grace, he's thankful to God. He's not thankful to Philemon, which tells us that God has begun the work of grace in Philemon's life. Paul acknowledges that, and he trusts that God is continuing, going to continue his life, his work of grace in Philemon's life. Very hopeful, very powerful And God is the main character. Matter of fact, if you read the story in a certain way, which narrative critics often do, you look for the main character here. It's hard to say the main character in Philemon is Paul. It's actually hard to even say it's Philemon or Onesimus because undergirding the entire letter is the actions of God behind the scenes, infusing grace, transforming, and allowing people to respond in kind. That is the gospel. That's the beauty of it. Now, 8 through 16 is very interesting because here we find out that Onesimus has become a saint. And as we saw in Matthew chapter 18, those little ones are not little ones. So because he is now in Christ, Onesimus is a believer. And verse 8 through 16 operates with the primary topic is, of course, in verse 10. But it's a cause and effect paragraph where Onesimus has become a saint Now, what are the effects of being a saint in Christ? And Paul plays out how this little one is not really a little one. He's very useful both to Paul and to Philemon. And then we have verse 17 through 22. The main idea is in verse 17. And then Paul is going to provide props for verse 17. Receive him as you would receive me. He's going to give him support and reasons for how he can do this. 
What is most interesting, I think, about this section is the response of Paul. Now, presumably, Onesimus has wronged his master in some way. We don't know the precise details of that, but he has wronged him. We know that flogging or breaking of his legs could have been the order of business. Paul is not going to call on Philemon to respond in that way, instead the complete opposite manner. But what Paul does is interesting how the damage that's incurred, the wrong that's been done, Paul is going to step in and address that and provide the payment. I think that's a powerful demonstration of the gospel. What Paul has seen in his own life, unworthy, the gospel has transformed him. Christ, on behalf of God, has come in and paid the wrong that Paul has done. Now Paul is enacting the gospel in his life and his relationship with Philemon and Onesimus. Paul is going to provide for the damage done and take the expense. This is what Martin Luther says about this, and I like this quote. He says this, What Christ has done for us with God the Father, that St. Paul does also for Onesimus with Philemon. For Christ emptied himself of his rights and overcame the Father with love and humility so that the Father had to put away his wrath and rights and receive us into favor for the sake of Christ, who so earnestly advocates our cause and so heartily takes our part. And then Luther says, for we are all the Father's Onesimuses. That's a powerful demonstration of the gospel. Paul has seen it in his own life and now extends it on behalf of the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. Paul is willing to right the wrongs and to make payments. And then verse 23 through 25, we finalize with verse 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul truly believes the power of the gospel to transform is going to continue to do this work in Philemon's life. Now, what what can we take as relevance here as application for our own lives today, looking at this very short text in Philemon and applying it to our own life? Well, in our society, let's be honest with ourselves, our society works very similarly to Roman society. We work by manipulation We work by coercion. We work by vengeance. We work by, I'm honorable and you are not. We work by one-upmanship. The gospel rewrites that. It says that there is not a paterfamilias, which is the Roman emperor or even the president of the United States, or the nation. Our father is God, and we are all in Christ Uh, brothers and sisters. And as brothers and sisters, we have no right or claim or entitlement to one another except to see each other as highly esteemed and loved in the family of God. Do we in our relationships truly view each other here at this church and around the globe, for those who are in Christ, as belonging to one family with God the Father as the head? Or are we broken by discord? Number two, How do we respond to someone that we would view in the body of Christ as someone lesser? Someone someone who doesn't have our gifts, our disposition, our social background, our status, our clout, our financial security. How do we respond to them? Well, uh, if anybody had a right to look down upon a fellow believer, it would have been Philemon to Onesimus. I dare say none of us today are slave owners. 
who have a relationship with Onesimus, but Paul is calling the transformation of the gospel to be seen in a radical way, whereby he has to relate to Onesimus now as a brother in Christ. This little one is now highly esteemed. So esteemed that Paul says, receive him as you would receive me. He is useful to Paul and both to Philemon. I wonder if our ministries, if we view other believers in that way. The less, the least, as truly significant and truly advancing the kingdom of Christ. They're not to be despised. They're to be used, useful, seen as useful and gifted. And number three, my assumption today is that you have at one time received hurt from another person in the body of Christ. How do you respond? How do I respond? Do we extend radical forgiveness? How can we? Well, we can when we realize that we have received radical forgiveness. God in Christ reconciling us to himself. Can we then respond in kind? I think so. Does Paul do this in relationship between Philemon and Onesimus? He certainly does. And he calls Philemon to extend a radical forgiveness to a slave. Radical forgiveness, because this is where I'd like you to do what Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, invites us to do, which is to say, use your theological imagination. What are the repercussions of treating Onesimus, who's now coming back to the home, as he would receive Paul? What is that going to do for Philemon's status and his family? If he has another slave, what are they going to say? Hey, he was wronged, and boy, he's being treated great. Is it going to disrupt the family system? the honor system in society. And so the argument works from a greater to a lesser. If in this case, Paul holds Philemon to radical forgiveness and to esteeming of the least in the body of Christ, how much more can we and should we do this? But only because we've been transformed by the gospel of God's grace. So I want to go back to the questions in closing. What effect does the gospel have on our relationship with other believers? The gospel has brought us into the body of Christ. We are therefore brothers and sisters in Christ who have experienced the same grace. It should be a daily transforming experience where our hearts are filled with gratitude and respond to fellow believers in the same way. How do we break the pattern of society marked by manipulation, coercion, vengeance, and what-upmanship? By the power of the Spirit and a life of gratitude and kinship community that we value above all. What empowers us to motivate and motivates us to love others deeply? The grace of God and tasting His grace. I trust that is your desire today. I trust all of us have seen the great grace of God in our life that has transformed us. And then we look at one another truly as brothers and sisters in Christ who are equally esteemed and equally valued and equally worthy in the kingdom of God to demonstrate their gifts. And I trust in all of this, our hearts are inflamed with gratitude as we respond to one another. Let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your word that transforms us. Thank you for the gospel of grace that tells us we came in as those who were unworthy, those who are useless, but now those who are useful because of Christ. 
Help us to love one another deeply by your grace, by your spirit. Develop in us that sense of family, deep brother and sisterhood, all for your glory and that Christ is seen as glorious. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.